Well, this morning we return to Matthew chapter 13, where we find another parable of Jesus. Uh, We've been looking to Scripture now for a number of weeks to see what the church is according to Scripture. And we've seen that Jesus is revealing Himself, who He is, and He's also revealing who His church is and what His church is. And we are taking little glimpses and little pieces here and there and and putting together this, this comprehensive image, little pixel by pixel, of what the church is according to Scripture. And this morning we look again at another parable. And just to remind you, or if you weren't here and didn't hear the sermon last week, a parable uh, literally means to throw alongside. And it is a verbal way, telling the telling of a story that puts two things next to each other. It throws two things alongside each other. And one is a common lived experience And the other is a parallel spiritual reality. And Jesus uses these parables. He throws these things alongside of each other to reveal truth and to conceal truth. He says in his own explanation of what parables are that they are intended both to reveal information and to conceal information. More on that maybe another day, but... This morning, Matthew chapter 13, and we find the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Similar looking things that are totally different. So give your attention to God's Word. Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30, and then his explanation of the parable in verses 36 to 43. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, because while you are pulling the weeds, you may uproot the wheat with them. Let them both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned. Then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. Verse 36. Then he left the crowd and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds in the field. And Jesus answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the world. And the good seed stands for the people of the kingdom. The weeds are the people of the evil one. And the enemy who sows them 
is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out His angels, and they will weed out of His kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Let's pray for God's help and blessing in understanding His Word. Father, once again, would You give us ears that can hear, a faith that can believe, eyes that can see reality. Lord, would You bless and protect Your church, Your kingdom, Your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some things look alike, but are totally different. Some things look alike, but they are totally different. So one of my kids, one of my children, likes to make French toast. Over the holiday break, he decided to make a lot of it all at once like an entire loaf of bread of French toast. And the recipe that he used apparently called for a tablespoon or so of cinnamon to stir into the egg batter before dipping the bread to griddle the toast. Now, the chef of the day probably had earphones in his ears and probably was distracted to detail, which led to what we can call a culinary mishap. When I walked back into the house after he had finished cooking his breakfast, I noticed that it smelled like Mexican food. What is that smell, I asked at 9 o'clock in the morning. It smelled good but it did not smell like breakfast. That's Hamilton's French toast, I was told. Now, in the Patrick kitchen, you need to understand uh, that we have an entire cabinet that is devoted to spices and rubs and seasonings of various kinds. And I don't mean a small cabinet. I mean a large, full-sized cabinet. In fact, there are so many bottles in that cabinet that they can't be stored upright. They have to be put on their side, and we've had to label on the caps with a sharpie what the contents of those many bottles are. And it was under these circumstances that I suppose cinnamon would be mistaken 
for cumin. And that is how Mexican French toast was born in our kitchen. It became a reality. We fused those foods and those cultures together, but only one person in our family tried to eat it. So the words cumin and cinnamon, when they're handwritten with a sharpie, yeah, you can see how those words do look alike. And the size of the bottles they were in, the look of the bottles, it, it was identical looking. And even the powdery substances of cumin and cinnamon, they do look a lot alike. But the test taste will always prove that cumin and cinnamon They may look alike, but they are totally different. The test of taste proves that every time. Now, in the same way, in the parable of Jesus, he says that there are similar looking people in this world, but there is a test that will always prove or disprove who the people of God, the people of the kingdom, the children of God, who they really are. And that's a powerful and a difficult parable that we have just read. It's a challenging one. It may be the hardest passage of Scripture and clearly the hardest setting to preach it. Uh, But I want you to turn your attention. We have six points from this parable this morning. And Jesus tells another agricultural story to communicate a profound spiritual truth. You remember last week we considered the parable of the sower or the parable of the soils. And he took an agricultural example of something they all were familiar with and he used it to tell a spiritual reality. And so he's done the very same thing here. This time we have a story about a farmer his field, and good seed. That's all in verse 24. A farmer, his field, and good seed. But we also have a story about a rival enemy who came in darkness, that is, at the time that everyone was sleeping, and he came intent on sowing bad seed. Bad seed in another man's field. Now remember, this is an agricultural example and one that these people would have understood. Commentators say that this is the kind of thing that would have happened. Rival farmers who sought to bring harm and damage to another man and his crops would actually do things like this. So it's a real life experience that these people would have identified with perhaps more than we do in the same way. But beyond that, we really have here, and this is the third point, a story about the world. That's what it says in verse 38. It's a story about the world in which we live. And just as the parable of the soils, it was said that that parable really tells us the history of humanity and the kinds of people, the kinds of hearts that humans have always had. So this parable, in a way, really is the history of the world. It's the history of creation and of fall. 
and of the promise of redemption. Seeds of fruitless weeds were sown in a man's field. Now this word weeds, you've heard this parable called the parable of the wheat and the tares. I call it the wheat and the weeds. Uh, All of it means the same thing. Zizania is the word used here. Tares is the word for what was growing there. But we know it as tall rye grass. That's what it was. They were fruitless weeds. It was tall rye grass. And early on, that zizania, those tares, also known as darnel, that's the particular grass that they believe that it was, it looks a whole lot like wheat when it's very young. It's hard to even distinguish between darnel, the tares, the zizania, the weeds, and young wheat. When next to each other, they look an awful lot alike. But as they grow older, and as the wheat begins to bear its grain, its fruit, that is when you can distinguish easily between the wheat and the weeds. That's the the taste test between cumin and cinnamon that becomes obvious once you have that experience. Once the wheat starts to bear its grain, it's, it's visible which one is wheat and which one is the weed. But when they're very young, you can't tell the difference. And we're told that those weeds would not be uprooted, but they would be allowed to coexist for a time, for the good of the wheat. This is very important, and I'll talk about this more in a moment, but what's going on here is that as the wheat and the weeds would grow next to each other, underneath the surface, their roots would begin to intermingle. They would intertwine. And that's why you couldn't remove the one without damaging the other, Jesus said. Jesus said, no, for the good of my wheat, leave the weeds because you can't remove the one without harming the other. But at the day of harvest, the evil weeds would then be exposed. They would be bundled and they would be burned, Jesus says. And that's a story about the world. And it should make us shudder. These are strong words of a promised judgment and condemnation. There is no pretty way to put it. But this is what the Lord says is true. And it's not only here. We heard it in our words of reflection from Matthew 25. Uh, We read there about how Jesus says a day is coming where He will separate sheep from goats. Two things that are similar looking but totally different. We also elsewhere read in Scripture about the winnowing of seed and chaff, that those things will be separated. One will be kept and one will not. And then here we have the story of the wheat and the weeds, the very same story, the same conclusion. Scripture is very clear about the Lord making a distinction between people. That there are some who by His grace He calls His children. That He makes heirs. 
And it's not because in and of themselves they're any better. Ultimately, the rest of Scripture tells us it's because He has sown them and caused them to bear fruit. And so it's a hard story, a story of of hard kingdom truth. But remember why Jesus is telling this. What is the context of the parables in Matthew 13? The Pharisees, the religious leaders, those who apparently knew God's Word and God's law so well, a very religious people, they had seen the ministry of Jesus and had said that it was demonic and it was satanic. And Jesus is using these parables to teach and to proclaim there are some who look very pious, some who look very religious, some who seem to have a knowledge of God and His Word and His law, but it is not so. Not everything that looks one way is actually really that way. The hard teachings of Jesus. And then fourthly, the parable is also not just a story about the world, but it is a story about the church. It is especially a story about the church. Jesus says that the church, the people of the kingdom, the children of God, that is the good seed that the farmer sows intentionally as he desires a wheat crop to come from his own field. And he says that that wheat will be subjected to frustration. The frustration of not having the field all to itself. But growing up alongside, next to, by, and even intertwined with the weeds. An alien and foreign growth that will compete for nutrients and can try to choke out the life of that wheat. But for the church, in the end, at the time of harvest, they will not be bundled and burned as the weeds will. They will be housed in the barn. They will be bundled and barned, taken to the big house. And Jesus says it's a very different outcome for the wheat and for the weeds. Though they look so much alike at one point, he says their destination is totally different. This is yet another call in Scripture for God's people to bear fruit. We've heard it again and again and again. In the parable last week, the parable of the soils, it was the same thing, is that good seed will bear fruit. Good seed will transform. It will produce something. 30, 60, 100 fold of what would normally come. And so we're told we're to be a fruitful people. And so in one application, we could say that's for us to carefully consider. Are we living like wheat or are we living like weeds? Are we bearing fruit? Are we showing evidence that God is at work in us? That's an important application of the parable. But another one, another important application, and some would say the ultimate application of this parable, is that we, the church, needs to be patient. That it is, the parable is preparing us that it is a long, hard life of living in the midst of weeds 
in the master's field and waiting for the day of harvest, waiting for the day where frustration and conflict will be behind us, having peace then and only then. But waiting patiently is something that none of us does well. None of us does it well. Dan Doriani, in his commentary on this parable, uh, he was a professor of mine in seminary, somebody I appreciate greatly and value greatly. Listen to what he says regarding this call to patience and this understanding of the kingdom. He says, The kingdom of God comes gently like a seed. It does not come as an army with brute military force. It does not even come with the force of a club or a hammer. Now, a hammer is a legitimate tool, and every man ought to have one. But some men want to hammer all the time, even to drive screws. Oh, the Lord owns and uses a hammer for sure, but it is not His favorite kingdom instrument. The kingdom of God comes with the power of a seed. A totally different kind of power than what was expected. God's people always thought that when the kingdom comes, when the Messiah comes, it will come with brute force. It will come with military force. And God would reign with such force. And here Jesus is telling His disciples that the kingdom of God comes like a seed. It's small. It seems insignificant. Oh, but the transformative power is unmatched. It will transform everything and it will bear fruit in people. And so we need to be patient and let our expectations be redefined by Scripture. That God's Word would paint our expectations and not that things will go in this life as we want, not that things will go in the church as we want, because our expectations well, they just tend to be wrong. So we're to wait patiently until the harvest. Fifthly, the parable is also a story about the church in the world. A story about the church in the world. Now, if you think back many weeks, you'll remember that we said things like this about the church in the world, particularly back in the Old Testament when we were there. That God's people have been a homeless wandering people. They've been strangers. They've been refugees. Think back to Abraham and Moses and the Israelites. The image of God's people was of that kind of wandering and homeless people. That's the church in the world, waiting for a promised land patiently. We're also told that God's people, like the Messiah, are despised and rejected by the world misunderstood by the world, and certainly conflicted in the world and with the world. In a few minutes, we're going to close with a hymn that we've sung already recently, but the lyrics were so connected to this passage of Scripture, I wanted us to sing it again. But concerning this tension between the church being in the world and living in the world, listen to two stanzas from the church's one foundation. Just listen to these. Though with a scornful wonder, men see her, the church, sore oppressed. 
by schisms rent asunder, by heresies distressed. Yet saints their watch are keeping, their cry goes up, how long? And soon the night of weeping shall be the morn of song. Listen to the words that we're going to sing in a pretty song about the church. That we are sorely oppressed. Schisms have rent us. They've ripped at us. Heresies have distressed us. And the response from the saints is, how long will this go on? Those are the things we're singing in that hymn. They don't sound like things you would sing about. But Matthew chapter 13 gives us the category for why we sing about them. Because we're longing for a harvest. We understand that in the church, in the church we'll have these strains in the world. And then the next stanza. The church shall never perish, her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish, is with her to the end. Though there be those that hate her, the church, and false sons in her pale, false sons within her body, against a foe or a traitor, she ever shall prevail. Listen, that hymn prepares us for exactly what Matthew chapter 13, what Jesus' parable is telling us. There's going to be some hard stuff in the world between the church and the world. But it, it's even harder than that. And this is the last point. That is, there's going to be really hard stuff in the church and in the church itself. Because this story is also about the world in the church. The church is in the world, but Jesus is telling us that the world is in the church. The world is not being uprooted from or out of the church, not in this life, not until the great harvest, he says. And part of that tension between church and world is that the church, strangely, can feel so tempted to try to fit in the world to try to be like the nations. And those are the lessons we learn from Saul and from Israel when we talked about be careful what you wish for because you might just get it. So the church strangely wants to fit in the world. We want to be accepted by the world, but we're told that will never happen. And now the result of that is that the world is in the church. Jesus says that the weeds grow up right next to the wheat. And in all this, Jesus prepares us to know, and here's two things to consider carefully. We will not have a pure church in this life. We will not have a pure, perfect church in this life. And so many churches, so many presbyteries, so many denominations need to be reminded of this. The wheat and the weeds, Jesus left them to grow up next to each other. He said He wasn't going to weed the weeds until the great time of harvest. That means brace yourself, prepare yourself. There's going to be a lot of frustration, a lot of conflict, a lot of tension, a lot of disappointment. 
not just in the world, especially in the world, but even in the church, even in the church. And the second thing is that Jesus prepares us to know we will have much kingdom frustration, conflict, and disappointment in this life, in the church, and in the institutions of the church. And you've probably seen this firsthand, just as I have. Whether it's the church or institutions of the church, you've seen the tension and conflict between wheat and weeds. And sometimes it makes you want to pull your hair out with frustration. Sometimes you just shake your head with disappointment. But Jesus told us it would be this way in this life. And I wish that I had studied and read and preached this parable more carefully, I don't know, 18 years ago in my own life to understand the dynamic that Jesus said we are to be prepared for, we're to brace ourselves for. Disappointment, frustration, and conflict. That's the church in the world for the life that we have on earth. Now, I want to close with some application. And I want you to listen very carefully. I, I, I fear being misheard or misunderstood or misspeaking over the next few things I'm going to say. So, so listen very carefully. Jesus has said that some people will look like good seed early on. And in this life, I would say there are some philosophies that sound like good seed early on. But the test of time and the failure to bud and show fruitful grain will always expose the weeds as weeds in the very end. And so as Christians living in the world, here's, here's my application for, for us to all consider carefully. I think that we understand that wheat and weeds, they're going to grow up next to each other. And Jesus has said in his own way in the parable that you don't up uproot the weed and you leave it for the sake of the wheat. And I explained to you that there was this intertwining of roots, this commingling of roots. And I tried to find a good picture of this and I couldn't find a good one. But you can picture this in your head. Two, a, a wheat, a weed growing next to each other, and under the surface, the complicated roots intertwining, commingling, sharing space, overlapping together. I want to talk to you about the importance of discerning your worldview your tactics, the things that you are willing to embrace and identify with as it relates to this passage and the caution of commingling and intertwining roots with weeds. And I'm going to give you two examples that I heard just in the last two weeks from the national news. Listen carefully. <clears throat> Lessons from the right. Lessons from the right. 
You're familiar, um, and maybe you heard some of this as I did, on different podcasts and reading different articles, but those who stormed the White House, and in the pictures and images that you saw, you saw a lot of Christian paraphernalia, images of crosses, images of the Bible. Could there be a commingling of roots in our tactics and what is happening here? That's what I want you to think about. With the story of Christian nationalism, a commingling of roots and strategies and thoughts that may look good but need to be examined more scripturally and more biblically. One example of an account that I heard from that, and I'll zero in on this as the example, was a Christian man who was interviewed after... He had been at the Capitol, and he gave his own testimony, his own account, his own story of, and I think he was one who was carrying Christian paraphernalia or wearing t-shirts. He's on the brink of entering the Capitol, and he stops before he trespasses, and he says two things. He says, I prayed I prayed, should I do this? And he then said he felt God push him in the back. And in his account for why he would choose to trespass, and yes, the Bible has some things to say about trespassing on property. He says that he prayed, should he do this? And he told the person in the interview, I never heard God say no. And so he justified entering, violating, trespassing, breaking into property, and being a part, whether knowingly or unknowingly, into everything that was going on around him. And as I heard this discussed in the medium that I heard it, it was rightly criticized that we have people, professing Christians, who are using a way of thinking about decisions, decision-making, that are foolish. They're so foolish, they're worldly. To say that, well, I didn't hear God say no, so I did it. What what parent would allow their child to make decisions based on such a practice? Well, we wholeheartedly believe in prayer and seeking the wisdom of God. But we equally understand that God has revealed in His Word principles that direct our steps. And so we've got to not think like the world, not act like the world, but take Scripture seriously. In your own mind, imagine the kinds of things that you could justify doing if you think like that and say, well, I didn't hear God say no. Right? You could find yourself into breaking every commandment of God because you didn't hear a voice say no or, well, I felt like God pushed me in the back. Well, no, maybe that was the other guy trying to trespass himself who pushed you on the way. We've got to be cautious. Christians need to be cautious and not commingle their roots of thought, their tactics, their philosophies, and their thinking with what's happening around them in the world. A gentle but sincere pushback on the right. Now, lessons from the left. It is all around us in the culture that we're living, and it's coming, it's coming from every direction. 
But we as the church must be very, very careful to look to Scripture in the same way that I just used in speaking of the right. But when we address the explosive issues of race and gender and sexuality, the Scriptures give us all that is needed to rightly understand equality as God defines it. Justice, peace. We need to be very careful that our roots are not commingling and intertwining with philosophies of the world. Secular thinking, philosophies, and tactics. It's happening all around us. The right, the left, we're all getting Scripture and the use of Scripture wrong. We're putting it aside or we're misusing it. And we need to look to God's Word and its principles and its instruction and what it has to say to us. So whether on the right or on the left, are your roots intertwining and commingling with weeds in the way that we're thinking? Oh, we want to be a biblical people. We want to be a faithful people. And it is so hard. And it is so confusing. And it is so tempting to want to agree with the world and embrace the world out of a fear of them accusing us of something that's not true. But we just don't want people to think that. But at the end of the day, we're a people of the book. We're a people of God's Word. His Word is what we stand on. And His Word alone can, can drive and compel us to pursue justice and righteousness and peace in a way that honors Him and glorifies Him. We're called to be the wheat, to bear fruit, to bear grain. We're told we will live among the wheat all the days of our life. And it will create tension and conflict and frustration and disappointment. But Jesus says in the end, there is a day coming, there is a harvest. Well, He will be the one to separate the one from the other. We can't do it. We can't separate it at all. And at the end of all this parable, he says, do you have ears to hear? Can you hear what I'm saying? Can you be patient, love one another, whether wheat or weed, until the day of harvest? Jesus seems to be preparing us to have a long haul view, a long obedience in one direction, and it's going to be hard. It's going to require patience. We'll be disappointed with some of the things we happen even within the church. But let's pray. Let's pray that we'll have that long-haul view to see that God is at work. He's fulfilling His purposes. We don't understand them, but we can trust Him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, oh, that we would have ears to hear the spiritual realities that Jesus is telling the church, the children of God, the people of God. Lord, would you give us that long-haul view to wait for it with patience, to understand that the church has one foundation, and it's Jesus Christ, the Lord. Help us, Lord, to look to Him and to His Word to guide our steps. Keep us, Lord, from unnecessarily intertwining our roots with the world. 
thinking like them, taking our lead from them. Oh, Lord, may it never be true. We ask this and pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.